This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled 2 Samuel. But before we examine the events found here in 2 Samuel chapter 8, I should take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help you to remember that King David had a desire to build a temple for the glory of God. But rather than allowing David to build the house of the Lord, the Lord instead promised to build the house of David. And he promised to do this by raising up a descendant who would come along and rule and reign in righteousness forevermore. Well, then after receiving this prophecy, which I'll remind you was pointing to the promised Messiah, Jesus, the Lord then empowered David to go out and defeat every enemy so that the people of God could inherit the land of promise. And as we consider the conquest of King David, which are recorded here in our text tonight, we're also going to consider the way in which the Lord Jesus has already provided us with the victory that he has already gained for us over every spiritual enemy. Well, with this as our focus, let's turn our attention now to the events which unfold here in 2 Samuel chapter 8. If you would look with me, beginning there at verse 1, here we read, After this it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Method Emma from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines he measured off those to be put to death and with one full line those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. Now here in the opening verses of our text tonight, we find King David. He's attacking the enemies of Israel who were dwelling on either side of Israel's territory. The Philistines were occupying the land between the territory of Judah and the Mediterranean Sea, while the Moabites were occupying the land which was just on the east side of the Dead Sea. I should also point out that the Hebrew word that's translated attacked here might be better rendered defeated, or you might even say conquered. Therefore, David was defeating and he was conquering the Philistines and the Moabites who were occupying the land that the Lord God had given to his people. He's basically defeating and conquering those who were living to the south and east and the south and west of Israel. And not only that, but we also find King David conquering the land to the north of Israel's territory. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me here, beginning at verse 3, here we learn that David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. Now here in these verses we find King David he's now traveling northward in order to conquer the land all the way up to the Euphrates River. And as he moved north of Israel's territory he met a man named Hadadezer who was the king of a place called Zobah and it'll help us to understand that Zobah was actually a kingdom which was located within the borders of another kingdom called Syria. Therefore, Hadadezer was a king who ruled over one part of this, uh, what seems to be a segregated Syrian kingdom. I should also point out that the Hebrew word translated defeated, well, it's the same word that's found back in verses 1 and 2. With that being the case, we can see then that King David was conquering Hadadezer, the king of Zobah. As a result, the, the Syrians, well, they saw it was in their best interest to help the king of Zobah defend all of this land against the attacks of King David, and yet what they failed to understand is that the Lord was actually giving their land into the hands of Israel. And with this in mind, if you would look with me, beginning at verse 5, 
Here we read, when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Now, here in these verses, we find the Syrians, they're leaving their city of Damascus in order to assist the king of Zobah. But Rather than defeating the armies of Israel, we learn that the Lord preserved David by helping him to then subdue uh, and then also subjugate uh, the land of Syria. Uh, We also learn that David built garrisons in Syria of Damascus, which is to say that he built military outposts there in that area so that he could continue to govern this land which was occupied by the Syrians. Now, in light of these victories, it's important for us to understand that when we learn that the Lord was preserving David, that word translated preserved, it refers to the liberation and the salvation which comes from military victory. I know what you probably thought when we read it, that that he was being preserved like such delicious jam, but that's not the kind of preserves we're talking about here. No, he's being liberated and he's being saved uh, from his enemies. He's being granted every military victory. And it's for this reason that the scholars who gave us the New Living Translation, they render verse 6 like this. Then he placed several army garrisons in Damascus, the Aramean capital, and the uh, Arameans became David's subjects and paid him tribute money. So the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. That's the translation of the word preserved. The Lord made him victorious in battle, wherever he went. And based on this, we can see then that the Lord was preserving King David by giving him the victory over all of Israel's enemies. And what this also means is that the Lord was the one who was enabling King David to conquer all of these lands. It's in similar fashion, and yet in a spiritual way, that I believe the Lord is providing every believer with the spiritual victory over every enemy. As we set out to accomplish his holy will, he preserves us by giving us the victory. And in order to prove my point, hold your place here in the book of Second Samuel and turn with me to Romans chapter 8, where we find the apostle Paul. He's encouraging the Christians in Rome by helping them to understand that those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, we're already victorious. As you make your way to Romans 8, I I want to take a moment to remind you that David, he wasn't a king who was just sitting at home waiting for the Lord to just deliver all of this land on his doorstep. David wasn't just sitting there waiting for the Lord to go out and fight these battles. Uh, you know, while, uh, while just, you know, allowing the Lord to, to, to go out and do this without him. No, instead, David was the tip of the spear as he led the armies of Israel into battle. He was leading his army against all of these enemies. And in light of this, it's crucial for every Christian to understand that the born-again believer has to engage in the battle. We have to engage in the spiritual battle. We have to be fighting the good fight of faith in order to experience the victory, which already belongs to those who trust in Jesus Christ. Now, with this is our focus, if you would look with me there at Romans chapter 8, I want to draw your attention to verse 33 where Paul asks, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, 
who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us. Listen, there isn't one enemy who is able to defeat the disciple of Christ who is setting out to live according to his will. And the reason why is due to the fact that we're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loves us. Now, most people see death as the final defeat, and and it's sad to say that there are many materialists, many naturalists, atheists who who don't believe in any sort of afterlife. They think that, you know, once we're dead, we're just worm dirt, right? And so they see death as just this final defeat, the end of their life. But Paul here assures us that uh, death is actually a victory for the Christian. Death is not the defeat of the Christian, but rather it's just further victory for us and the reason why is because death is the doorway that leads us into the loving arms of the lord right now we see as in a mirror dimly but when we're in the presence of our savior when we go through that veil of death we're we're going to see our savior face to face and and we're going to worship him right there in his presence and so uh, the, the 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 worst thing that could happen to an unbeliever which is death is actually the best thing that could happen for the believer. And so that with that, we can give thanks to God because the Lord gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, even over death. Sadly, though, there are many Christians who are failing to walk in the experiential victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they've received it, uh, you know, just by way of imputation. Right? They, they, they've received the benefit, uh, you know, as far as a future tense goes, but they're not experiencing the victory today. And the reason why is due to the fact that they're allowing their fears to keep them from actually engaging in the fight. They're allowing their fears to keep them from fighting the good fight of faith. And if this sounds like you, then I would remind you of what John wrote, the Apostle John in his first epistle. It's 1 John 5, verse 4. There he declares, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith has given us the victory over the world because our faith gives us access to the victory that the Lord Jesus secured when he died in our place on the cross. Our faith in Christ has already made us not just conquerors, but more than conquerors. And now, because we are more than conquerors, we can actually fight the good fight of faith with all confidence in knowing that the daily victory belongs to us. Not, not just that future victory of passing through the veil of, uh, 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 of death, through that doorway of death into the presence of the Savior. Of course, that's a victory for us. But we can actually have the victory today. The victory is ours today. We just have to walk by faith. And listen, the Lord not only gives us the victory over every spiritual enemy today, but he also provides us, uh, or provides for us, I I should say. He provides for us as we set out to serve him. And with this as our focus, let's continue to make our way through 2 Samuel chapter 8. 
you would look with me again at 2 Samuel chapter 8, we'll pick up our study at verse 7. Here we learn that David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem, also from Betta and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer. King David took large amounts of bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toi sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Toi and Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. Now, here in these verses, we find this list of items that David was not only acquiring from the enemies that he had defeated, but now uh, he's finding himself making friends with, with uh, you know, the enemies of his enemy. And so we see David just acquiring more wealth as he goes out conquering. David acquired great wealth, which included uh, great, uh, you know, a lot of gold, we find a lot of bronze here, and a lot of silver. Based on this, we can see then that the Lord was actually providing for David and his men as they spent their time serving the Lord. And in similar fashion, I believe that the Lord also provides for those who set out to serve uh, our Savior each and every day. And in order to prove my point, hold your place here in the book of Second Samuel and let's make our way now to Matthew chapter 6, where we find the Lord. He's challenging those who become concerned about their financial situation. They begin to worry uh, about, you know, wh- are we going to have enough food tomorrow? Are we going to have a house tomorrow? And, and, he, and he's encouraging those who have these sorts of worries to, to put their focus straight. And as you're making your way there to the sixth chapter of Matthew's gospel account, I, I want to take a moment to quell the concerns of those who hide their faith from their co-workers. And, and the reason why is due to the fact that they're afraid of losing their job. So many Christians have this mindset that, you know, if they show up to work and they share their faith with, with their co-workers or they're outspoken about their Christian faith, that they're eventually going to get fired. And if they get fired, then they're going to kick out of their house and they're going to live on the streets. And then it's just going to be this downward spiral. And it's just like this huge huge fear in the lives of so many Christians. If this sounds like you, I would encourage you to realize that the Lord is the one who provides for us. We might look at our boss as the one who signs the paycheck and therefore he's the or she's the provider. And, and yet I would just remind you that the Lord is the one who provides for us ultimately. As a matter of fact, look with me there at Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin reading at verse 19. Here the Lord Jesus declares, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet 
I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's promising provision to those who simply dedicate their lives to the Lord. He is promising provision for those who will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And with that being the case, listen, the Christian who is hiding their faith from their co-workers for fear of losing their job and ending up on the streets, uh, well, you, you just got to stop worrying about your paycheck and, and instead start asking the Lord, how should I serve you in the workplace? How should we serve the Lord in the workplace? Now, don't get me wrong, because I'm not suggesting that it's okay for the Christian employee Uh, to allow their evangelistic endeavors to keep them from doing a good job because that sometimes happens. There are some Christians who get fired and and it's not because they're evangelizing people at work, but rather because they're not doing their job, right? So, uh, you know, that does happen. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the Christian who, for fear of losing the job, decides to just be quiet about their faith. Listen, the Lord is the one who provides for us. Therefore, it only makes sense that we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And as we do, the Lord is going to help us to become the best employees possible while simultaneously showing us every opportunity to be a witness for him. The Lord is going to help us to see all of the opportunities that are before us and the reason he actually has us in the workplace. Not only that, but I would also encourage every Christian to take courage in knowing that you can actually tell your employer that you can't work on Sundays and that you can't work on Wednesdays. And the reason why is because you go to church. So many times I hear Christians say, well, I got to work this Wednesday. I got to work this Sunday. It's like, go tell your boss you can't work because you go to church. Well, what if they fire me? Well, what if they fire you? Maybe that's not the job you're supposed to be at. Maybe the Lord has something so much better for you. I'm just saying, let's stop living by fear and start walking by faith. And and as we walk by faith, let's seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And if we do that, then we can uh, know for certain that he is going to provide us with everything else. He's going to add unto us everything that we need. In this way, we fight the good fight of faith by trusting in the Lord to provide us with everything we need, including gainful employment. At the same time, the believer who seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, well, they become a disciple who realizes the importance of dedicating our wealth for the glory of God. And in order to explain what I'm saying, let's turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 8. I want to pick up our study there at verse 11 because here we learn that King David also dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. 
Here in these verses, we learn that King David received tribute from all of the different kingdoms that he had conquered. But rather than seeing these riches as his own personal bank account, rather than seeing this as his own personal wealth, King David realized that the Lord was the one who had given him the victory over every enemy. It's for this reason that I believe David decided to dedicate all of this gold and silver and bronze to the Lord. Now, it'll help us to understand that the word dedicated, which is found there in verse 11, it's actually translated from a Hebrew word which speaks of consecration, sanctification, and even preparation. That being the case, it seems to me here that David was actually setting aside these riches for the glory of God, for the consecration, for the sanctification, and for the preparation. But, but for what? Well, remember, in, in our chapter last week, we saw that David had a passion and a desire for building a temple. And it's a temple that his son Solomon would eventually get to build. And so David here, I believe, is beginning to gather together the materials necessary for this temple. He is setting aside all of this wealth for the consecration, sanctification, and preparation of the temple. In light of this, I would point out then that God, he seems to have been providing David with all of this great wealth because he knew that David was a man who would use this wealth for the right reasons. And in order to grasp how this applies to us, if you would hold your place here in the book of 2 Samuel and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, because it's in 2 Corinthians 9 where we find Paul. He's uh, making a connection and addressing the correlation between our generosity and and the the ability that the Lord gives us to actually be generous. In order to explain what I mean by this, I should take a moment to correct those televangelists out there on on the big hair network or tbn who they love to assure their audience that those who will simply give to their ministry will end up reaping the rewards of financial blessings listen i've said it before i'll say it again many many times uh my grandmother uh, was one of those ladies who, who who gave every dime to tbn and died as poor as could be. And it's like, well, where's the hundredfold increase here that they were promising my little old grandma for all these years? Well, it was a lie. It was a lie. They're flying around in their jets. They're living in their, you know, gated communities while my grandma, you know, is, is dying a poor widow, you know, in, in a rundown home in Phoenix, Arizona. The hundredfold increase that they promised this whole time never came through. And the reason why is because it wasn't a biblical promise. It was a promise made out of their own greed. Listen, there's so many who appeal to our own carnal desires so, so that they can acquire more wealth, so that they can spend it on their own personal pleasures. In contrast to this, Paul was helping the Christians in Corinth to understand that we don't give to get, but rather the Lord is ready to give more to those who want to give more. Not to those who want to get more, but to those who want to give more. With this in mind, look with me there at Second Corinthians chapter 9. Let's begin reading at verse 5 where Paul declares, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has this first abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Now, here in these verses we find Paul. He's helping his audience to understand that the Lord is ready to provide us with everything that we need so that we can give with cheerful generosity. He's, he's, not, he's not saying, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll give you everything that you're greedy for. I'll give you everything that you want to keep for yourself. But rather, if you're a believer who wants to use the wealth that the Lord gives us for his glory, then you better believe that the Lord is going to enrich us in everything so that we might have the liberty to become cheerful and generous givers. At the same time, though, it's also possible that you're a believer here tonight who's barely making ends meet, and you're thinking, well, I'd like to give more. Uh, I just don't have anything to give. If this is you, then you probably feel bad. It's, it's, it's probable that you feel bad because you don't have much to give. And, and, and you know, just to, just, just to be transparent and honest, I, I've even had people come up to me uh, after services and just apologize. Oh, I'm so sorry that, that I really uh, haven't been giving lately. I just go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I don't know anything about anybody giving anything here. I, I literally and honestly can tell you that I never look at what anybody gives here at Calvary South Austin. We've got a ministry, they collect and count the money, and I just see the overview of the financials. And one reason why is because I don't want to associate a price tag with your face. I don't want to, uh, you know, make a connection between a dollar amount and who you are. I, I, and, and one reason why is because my own sinful nature would lead me to begin to show partiality to those who give more. And it's sad to say that this happens all the time in the church. Just go to any church where there's a placard with somebody's name on, 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 on a tile or on a chair or something. It's just kind of like, so-and-so gave this. Well, praise the Lord for you. You know, there's your reward. You know, you, you, you got your accolades, and, and that's all you're going to get now, right? So I, I just don't want to engage in this sort of partiality and, and treat people differently based on what they give. I don't want to know. Don't tell me. If, if, if you're struggling and can't give, I'll never know it unless you say something. So <laughs> don't say anything about it. Furthermore, though, I would also remind you, if, if, if you wish you could give more and, and you don't have it, I just want to remind you about that poor widow who was only able to give two mites. According to the Lord Jesus, she actually gave more than anyone else. And the reason why is because they were all giving from their abundance. You know, for example, if you take a really rich person, like let's just grab, I don't know, Donald Trump, you know, and, and, and you know, this, you know, multi, you know, thousandaire or however much money he has, I don't know. But, uh, let's say he's, you know, worth a billion dollars. Well, if he gives away a million dollars, then who cares, right? It's a drop in the bucket, you know, in his bank account. But this widow who gives two mites gave everything. And in the eyes of the Lord, she gave more 
than someone who just, you know, took a million dollars out of their billion dollars and gave it. We would look at the million dollars and be like, oh my gosh, he gave so much. But the Lord saw the heart of that little widow who gave everything and said, she gave more. She gave more. Listen, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Not a proud giver, not, not a boastful giver, not someone who toots their own horn and gets the, the plaque on the chair. And The Lord loves a cheerful giver, regardless of what the gift is. I would also point out that your gift, regardless of the size, becomes a blessing to others. And the reason why is because, according to Paul here, God is able to supply and multiply. I love that word, multiply, especially when it comes to money. God is able to not only supply, but multiply the seed that we have sown. So let's talk about that little widow again. She gave two mites, but God took that and multiplied it. How, how so? Well, aren't we blessed by her story tonight? God multiplied the blessing of her two mites by giving us this story and encouraging those who might have less tonight to realize that even the little that they might give becomes a process of multiplication that God takes it and blesses in ways that we could never imagine. God is able to supply and multiply the seed that we have sown, which will then increase the fruits of our own righteousness. And in order to further grasp how this all works, let's take a moment to consider what happens when the financial offerings that we all give here at Calvary South Austin uh, are, are compiled and consolidated together. Uh, you as an individual might not be able to give a great deal of money, and yet we together are able to pool our resources and consolidate our cash so that we can use it together for the glory of God. Individually, we might not all have a whole lot of money, but together we're able to take it and use it for the glory of God in a way uh, that is just incredible. Uh, just, just to give you guys a few examples, we take the money that comes in through the offerings and we pay the rent on this building. Nobody just gives us this building. Right, we pay uh, rent every month, and, and the money that you know ends up in that box back there, we take that money, we pay the rent, so that we have a a place to worship together. We buy necessities like toilet paper. <laughs> you know, that's something that you're hoping will be here sometimes, right? Uh, also, electricity. You know, not to mention uh, you know the the uh, you know sound equipment. You know that we have for the worship team and, and media technology that we use for the, for the PowerPoints and whatnot. And, and not only that, but listen, the, the money that we gather together here at Calvary South Austin is used to buy children's ministry curriculum and snacks for the kids. Uh, that way our kids are blessed by our children's ministry program. And, and the money that we pool together here uh, is used to engage in all sorts of outreach, which include all the tracks that we print and, and give away for free and, and the production of television and radio programs, which are broadcast all across Texas. Got to realize that, you know, the money that, that we, uh, you know, gather here through offerings turns into radio programs as these messages are put out on the airwaves all throughout Texas. And people all throughout Texas are being blessed, uh, hopefully blessed at least, by, by our teaching ministry simply because of the money that we've given here for the glory of God. The offerings that are given here also become blessings to others because it enables Jeremy and myself to, to work full-time in the ministry here. And, and that enables me to study the Bible all week and, and, and prepare messages and, and provide Christian counseling to people here within our church. And, and Jeremy is able to, you know, uh, what do you do? 
He's able to produce, you know, the media-based outreaches. I mean, the, the television, the radio, the internet. We've got people listening uh, to our messages uh, all around the world. When, when we look at the numbers of, of, of where people are downloading uh, messages from, whether it's YouTube or the website, uh, there's people all over the world being blessed by the ministry that is happening here at our church. And all of that is made possible uh, by the finances that the Lord is bringing to our church uh, through each individual that is giving. And so praise the Lord for all of that. Just to give you guys kind of a, a, a just real quick overview of, of how money gets used here at our church. And in light of all this, I just want to consider something that Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. There he declares, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom uh, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. I love that. The measure that you choose to use when you give your generous gifts, it's going to be measured right back to you. And, and that's not, you know, uh, you know a spanking. That's an encouragement. That, that's incredible to consider that the Lord is, is not going to be a debtor to anyone. It's just important to understand that the blessings that return aren't usually, uh, you know, the same as what we give. In other words, think about it like this. We give offerings here which then turns into ministry opportunities, which then comes back uh, as blessings in many different ways. And, and, and therefore, listen, the more generous we are, well, the more we can accomplish through the ministry. The, the more we accomplish, the more we end up being blessed through the wealth of eternal rewards, which we're going to receive in heaven. And with that being the case, I would just encourage uh, every Christian here tonight, let's, let's have that heart of David. Because David, you know, he gathered all this wealth. He got the bronze and the, and the silver and the gold. And he looked at this and he didn't think, oh man, I'm banking now. No, he said, let's glorify God with this. That was the heart of David. And that's my encouragement to every Christian here tonight. Let's just have that heart where we look at the wealth that God provides us and, and we ask, how can we glorify God with this? Well, we also see that David ended up making a name for himself by, by serving in the Lord in the way that he did. And with this in mind, let's make our way back to 2 Samuel chapter 8. Let's pick up our study there at verse 13. Here we learn that David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Well, here in these verses, we find David continuing to leave this lasting impression upon the world, and he certainly has. And not only did he do this by conquering the Syrians there in the Valley of Salt, and not only did, did he do this by setting up garrisons there in the land of Edom, but he also made a name for himself in the way that he reigned over all Israel. In other words, David wasn't just some political figurehead, and, and, and he wasn't there just for his own glory, but instead he was there uh, to, to reign as a reflection of the Lord. And, and, and he was a hands-on leader who was leading the people of God in the way that he felt the, the Lord was leading him to do it. For example, let's look again there in the middle of verse 15. There again we see that David was administering judgment and justice to all his people. Now, the word judgment there speaks of the judgment seat from which judicial cases are tried according to the law. And so he was acting as a judge, and, and he was using the scriptures as the basis for his judgments. God, help us to have a Supreme Court who would follow in the footsteps of David. 
The word justice here also speaks of the punishment of the wicked as well as the vindication of the innocent. And would it be to God that we would have a judicial system here in America that would punish the wicked and vindicate the innocent? But regardless of what's happening here in America, David here was a king who was making sure that the judicial system of Israel was in line with the truths of God's word. And not only that, but he was also a king who understood the importance of delegating responsibilities to those who had shown themselves to be faithful. As a matter of fact, look with me there beginning at verse 16. Here we learn that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahulad, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Seraiah was the scribe. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. Now, for more on these guys, I would just encourage you to go back and listen to my in-depth study of this text. It's there on our website. But for now, I just want to point out that King David was delegating these different responsibilities to a group of faithful men who could lead others into their roles and responsibilities. He was setting up a hierarchy of leadership so that Israel could, could function properly. And based on all of this, we can see then that David was a man who knew that he couldn't do it by himself. He knew that he was a man who needed help with the task of running the kingdom. And rather than just, you know, being the, I can do it all and, and it all falls apart, you know, David re- recognized that delegation was an important part of being a good king. In the same way, our king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, he understands the importance of delegation. If you go back and you look at the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing that he does is what? He chooses 12 guys. He delegates. And, and he begins to lead uh, you know, the, 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 and, and birth the church through these 12 guys. And I believe that our King of Kings is still looking for faithful servants who will take up the cross and follow him by receiving delegated authority from him. Our King Jesus is still looking for those dedicated disciples who are willing to lay down their own lives, to set aside their own agenda so that we can commit ourselves to the wonderful work of the Lord. And with that being the case, I just want to conclude our study tonight by helping you to realize that the the leaders of our church here at Calvary South Austin, they're serving the Lord with the same delegated authority that David had when he extended uh, his uh, authority to those who were helping him lead the nation of Israel. You see, it's the Lord who gave him the authority to delegate those positions out. And, you know, not to toot my horn, but I know that the Lord has given me a similar authority to come in here and delegate uh, positions of leadership to, to faithful men so that we can begin to have a hierarchy of leadership within our church so that it functions in the way that it should. And this is a great thing. This is a beautiful thing that the Lord has given us to do. Much like David's leaders who sought servants who could help them to accomplish their roles and responsibilities, I'm here to tell you that the leaders of our church are also looking for faithful believers who are ready to become servants of our Savior. Trust me when I tell you that the King of heaven and earth, he's calling every Christian to serve him. We are the servants of the Lord, which implies we're serving him. And if you are serving him, then I would just say, you know, keep on keeping on. Don't grow weary in well-doing, but but continue to serve the Lord and you'll bear, uh, you know, uh, You'll you'll bear the fruit of that. You'll enjoy the benefits of it. 
But if you aren't serving, and listen, it, you know, we, we encourage people to hang out for six months before they start serving just to understand the vision of our church and whatnot. But if you've been attending our church for more than six months and, and, and you're not serving it, I would encourage you, find a place to plug in. Becoming a, become a functioning member of the kingdom of Christ by serving in the ministry here within our church. But now I recognize it's possible that you aren't serving because maybe you're afraid of failing. It's a very common fear. It's a very common fear that keeps Christians from stepping up. Fear of failing. But if you allow your fear of failing to keep you from stepping up, then isn't that a failure in and of itself? Don't be afraid of failing. I'll tell you right now, you're going to fail. So there, let's all get over it now. I'm going to fail, you're going to fail, we're all going to fail, right? The question isn't, are we going to serve God perfectly, but rather, are we going to be repentant when we do fail? That's the only question that we have to ask. So if you're not serving because you're afraid of failing, then you are failing to serve. And if that's the case, if that's your fear, I just want to close by reminding you, nothing will separate us from the love of the Lord. Nothing. Not even failure in ministry. Nothing will separate us from the love of the Lord. Therefore, rather than allowing the fear of failure to keep you from serving our Savior, I just want to encourage you to walk by faith and to do this by remembering that we are already, Christian, more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loves us. Let's pray.